On average, over 5,000 students at American universities are awarded PhDs in the humanities each year. Where is all this talent headed? What are these scholars doing? Welcome. You're listening to Careers in the Public Humanities, a podcast that explores the range of careers beyond academia. Each episode, we'll interview a person who's put their degree to use in innovative ways within cultural institutions, in digital and media production, in state or federal agencies, and other literary and cultural publics, in hopes of inspiring other humanities scholars to broaden the view of their career possibilities. This podcast is produced by English PhD students and alumni from the University of Rhode Island and has been made possible by Humanities at Large, a URI initiative funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities Next Generation PhD Grant Program. We usually begin our program by saying welcome back, but in this case, we really mean welcome back as we are returning from a lengthy hiatus. And when the pandemic took away our access to the sound room here at the University of Rhode Island, we were forced to reimagine ways to continue creating our careers in the Public Humanities podcast. And as we return, we are sort of experimenting with remote recording techniques. So there may be some trial and error involved in terms of sound quality and things like that. But of bigger importance is that after a almost two year absence, we are thrilled to be back. And we have a wonderful guest with us to help us uh, in our return. Our guest today is Rhiannon Sorrell. Rhiannon Sorrell is an assistant professor at the School of Arts, Humanities, and English and is the Instruction and Digital Services Librarian at Diné College in Salie, Arizona, on the Navajo Nation. Born to the Red House people and Tangle people clans, Rhiannon has an interdisciplinary background in information literacy instruction, creative nonfiction, digital humanities, and special collections and archival services to indigenous populations. She's a member of the 2018 cohort of the ALA's Emerging Leaders and serves on the executive board of the American Indian Library Association. Rhiannon is a partner and Diné coordinator for the NEH-funded project, The Afterlife of Film, Upgrading and Tribe Sourcing Southwest Materials in the American Indian Film Gallery. She's also a member of the 2021-23 cohort of RBS Mellon Cultural Heritage Fellows. Thank you for joining us today, Rhiannon. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to start with a topic that uh, it might be more personally meaningful for the former and current producers of this podcast, uh, although I think it will be of some interest to our wider listening audience as well. Uh, Rhiannon, like uh, all of us at the Careers in the Public Humanities, earned a graduate degree at the University of Rhode Island. And I wonder if you can tell us uh, a little bit about uh, the value of that library and information sciences degree, both in sort of shaping the work that you've done in your postgraduate career and specifically thinking about how that might apply to your public humanities work. Thank you again. Um, I would say right off the bat when I first heard this question is that the way it impacted me, the first thing that came to mind was the aspect of being so hands-on. It was a great counterbalance to a lot of the critical theory work that I was doing in the um, English department. I would pop over to GSL, I think it was GSLIS back at the time. I know it's under the Harrington School of Communication. Um, I would pop back over there and I would be using them interchangeably. I had work, coursework that I was doing in the English department, but I also had uh, coursework, particularly in the area of digital humanities. That's where I really started to get this feeling of a bridge forming between the two. And I started to see how both of them worked alongside with each other. Previously, my focus was primarily in information literacy instruction, and that was the extent to which I was seeing both departments and disciplines kind of intersecting, which sort of made sense because in the library science program, they were really preparing us to be um, instructors, and I was on the path for academic librarianship. So there was a big emphasis in teaching, and in particularly the information literacy aspect you know, to English department classes and 
uh, various different disciplines. But with the digital humanities courses, that was the first time I kind of got some hands-on experience utilizing a lot of technology tools. In particular, it was my first time playing around with LibGuides. And I did create a LibGuide. My first LibGuides was a uh, digital humanities LibGuides for uh, Dr. Valerie Carno, who was teaching digital humanities at the time. So that was my first experience with the intersection of the two disciplines. After that, right before I graduated, I did the LILSC uh, practicum. And that was actually a virtual internship with the University of Arizona with my current co-PI on the tribe sourcing grant, Dr. Jennifer Jenkins. And at the time, she had just got awarded, um, U of H had just got awards, awarded digital stewardship of the American Indian Film Gallery. And it was back before um, the activities we're doing now. So it existed on a legacy site with the Arizona.edu address. And at the time, I was really focusing in on this aspect of teaching and creating lesson plans and kind of got my first exposure with digital scholarship and digital humanities, uh, um, applying what I had been doing in those classes to this particular project because it involved making lesson plans um, about various topics uh, and videos inside the uh, American Indian Film Gallery website and pairing them with pieces of literature and creating uh, libguides for first year, second year level English classes. And those uh, lessons that I did still exist on the legacy site and have also been transferred over to our new website that is part of our current grant, which is the Tribe Sourcing Southwest Film website. So I would say in that respect, that's how I first kind of got the um, how those two disciplines sort of really merged uh, during my time at URI. Yeah, it sounds like I think uh, probably most of our listeners tend to be uh, graduate students and, and uh, are, might be thinking about uh, transforming that degree into uh, some public humanities work. But uh, that that connection between, all right, we're doing our coursework and there's all this theory and, and we're thinking about that and, and how can this ever connect directly to, um, you know, this, this public humanities work. And it, it sounds like the thing that you're saying is the way it connects is through hands-on work, uh, the, through getting your, getting your hands in there and into the, into the mud, so to speak, and, and doing the actual physical work uh, that this theory has maybe uh, prepared you for. I think the overall goal was utilizing a variety of tools. I remember in the library science course, we had to take a technology course and it involved everything uh, involving just basic IT type skills, but also getting into the areas of like coding and building like a basic site and just building some sort of foundation for utilizing these tools to put out what we were studying or what we want, basically a way to try to reach out to a broader audience and a broader community. And from the library platform, since I've served in the capacity as an academic librarian, but with my current projects, I'm also serving a broader audience outside academics, so reaching the general population. And it is applying a lot of those digital tools in a way that you can get this uh, scholarship out to a broader audience in a format or a platform that is that you can play with, that you can put out there for a variety of audiences, not just academic. Well, academics is one portion of it, but once I move more into library sciences, it is definitely spread beyond that. I think that's what we all sort of hope with our public humanities work is that it, it does manage to reach beyond academia and, and, and have this sort of broader scope and reach this uh, external audience uh, where, where it can probably do the most good. Um, and in that vein, you, you mentioned the uh, Tribe Sourcing Southwest Film Project. Uh, this is a fascinating project, and we could probably spend the entire podcast just talking about this. Uh, we'll get into some other topics, but it is the first project that, that I want to bring up and, and sort of get your thoughts on. So I wonder if you can just start by saying a little bit about what, what is tribe sourcing? What do we mean by the term tribe sourcing uh, sort of in general, and then how does it work specifically in your project? 
Crowdsourcing is uh, essentially a play on the word crowdsourcing. So we're reaching out to a lot of the communities to provide a lot of the commentary that we're utilizing on these films. So it really started when my co-PI at the time would send me videos and she used a lot of these for her own scholarship. And of course, they only had the original audio tracks or again, the narration was primarily done by a white male, a cultural um, and community outsider. And of course, a lot of the information would be wrong. And then my co-PI would ask for my feedback on what they were saying, whether it was indigenous languages that were being spoken there or what was really being uh, so she really wanted more context from the community. And for me, it was easier to provide a lot of uh, commentary on certain things that were just really obviously wrong. And um, when we first started this project, I we did a beta test where I was the one who provided the first narration for the films. And that was kind of like the proof concept. But the idea, you know, when you work with indigenous populations, when and a large group of people, you've got to get a range of uh, responses. So mine was only one. And when we started moving forward with this project, we wanted to get various number of points of view because as many times as I've shown these films to colleagues, relatives, uh, other community members, everyone spots something differently and they add another piece of the narrative to it. Someone would say, you know, on this region of the reservation, this is what we did. Whereas another would say, yeah, this is from where our region is. And this is what we did, that we did exactly as it's shown on the film. And a lot of times they would have personal stories uh, related to the activities, the places, or they would just remember things from back in the day, depending on the age of the narrators. We've had some older narrators who were able to you know, recall their own childhoods. And then we've also had younger narrators who were, saying, I remember my grandma talking about this. And we've had narrators that have spoken completely in Navajo and the, like the entire narration, counter narration was done in Navajo and others that were doing um, their commentary in English. So it was a way of kind of gathering a lot of, um, part of it was counter narration, but another part is when we moved it to the new platform was making new forms of metadata. A lot of the times people rely on established forms of cataloging classification like Library of Congress, and there's a lot of issues with that. But when we get more information, especially in native languages, we start to add a lot more uh, metadata into the information on the film. So being able to do this through tribe sourcing and getting a various number of uh, contributors to give voice back to these films was a way to kind of just bring them back to life, to just bring them back into the back into the community. Because a lot of times people have this feeling like with these non-native narrators, it exists out there, but it was sort of a way to kind of bring them back home. I really love this phrase, counter-narrative, counter-narration. Maybe to back up just a little bit, get our listeners sort of acquainted with uh, specifically what kind of films we're talking about. These these come from a collection by uh, someone named J. Fred McDonald. Uh, are all the films from, from his collection, the ones that he collected? Yes, they are. He was a professor, I believe, from Northern Illinois University. And a lot of, I don't know that they came that specifically from the university, but there was a time when they were jettisoning a lot of old, real to real films, uh, Kodachrome, uh, eight millimeter, all of that, uh, those stuff in lieu of newer media like VHS tapes and DVDs. And so he was collecting a lot of these and he actually did the first iteration of the digitization. That was when he was looking for who would be a digital steward for those digital collections. And that was how it was awarded. And I believe there was a call for proposals put out. I don't know the exact details about the call for proposals. I just know that the outcome was that the University of Arizona was the winning proposal and they got the digital stewardship for that. And then the original films are in the, the physical films are in the Library of Congress. Um, that's the background on, on the collection itself. 
Right. And so what when we're thinking in terms of a counter narrative, that means that there was an original narrative that that was contained in these films that, uh, as you say, was was certainly not tribe sourced. In fact, it probably comes from the perspective of, uh, you know, a white audience and and a uh, white viewpoint on uh, what these native and indigenous persons were like, uh, that they added this narration to the original films. So I wonder if you can say a little bit more about in terms of, of the original films and as they are uh, originally, uh, what exactly did they record? What's value? I, just, I feel like there's still something valuable about these films, even with the, the need for, uh, you know, counter narration. Uh, but uh, also maybe in that uh, explanation, you can say a little bit about what aspects of the original films also require this kind of decolonization effort. Uh, a lot of the films were produced by various companies. One of them was the Santa Fe Railway Rail, Railroads Company. A lot of them were tourist videos. A lot of them were supposedly educational videos with an anthropological spin on it. But I think for the most part, a lot of it was very touristy. And what was really inherently great about all of them is it really reflected the point of view was part of the terminal narratives that were kind of being pushed like we got to capture this stuff because this is going to go away at some point this is a dying race this is a dying language so we're just gonna you know capture this and because it's all eventually going away and it didn't necessarily go away and a lot of the if you just take away the audio tracks that utilizes a lot of uh, really out, they are films of their time. So there's a lot of offensive languages like using words like primitive, squaw, and uh, savage, and mongoloid. Those were the terms used inside these films to refer to specific, uh, and for me, a lot of it had to do with uh, the Diné films. And so a lot of these films had these um, these offensive types of narration that, again, came from the outside, primarily for tourists, some of them slightly anthropological. And strip that voice track away, they're actually very beautiful films. They're very well shot. I kept telling my uh, co-PI, if we can play this in just like IHS, like Indian Health Services waiting room, you know, people will stop and they'll just watch. And I've done that before where I've just played the films and muted the tracks and people just sit and watch and they start, if they have someone next to them, they'll start talking with them, like, remember this? Or remember, they'll have a conversation based on what they were seeing. And there's just so much richness in the information that they're providing, which is so much more... Again, it's a counter-narration to what is it's just very superficial coverage that's going on inside the the main narration that is being done uh, in the, the original track of these films here. That's kind of like where they came from and why this counter-narration was needed for these films and because of the, the original tracks and how they were. <laughs> and I tell me the uh, name of the website where people can find. Yes, it's no, tribes. Yes, it's tribesourcingfilm.com. And when I was there and, and looking through uh, some of the videos, not all of them have counter narrations recorded. Some of them still have the original narration. And, and sort of as I was, and, and the ones that do have the counter narrations recorded, that, that's noted uh, in the description of the video. So I was struck by it, looking at them next to each other like listening to the narration next to each other it really jumped out um the differences between the ones that still had the original narration and the uh, ones that have the counter narration how much more authentic i i suppose the the counter narration described uh, uh, especially when you place it next to those original narrations is I guess what I want to ask in that vein is, are there plans? I know you had to pause the project uh, because of the pandemic. Are there plans at, at some point to go back and complete those counter narrations? Or do you want to keep any of those original narrations? I can see why you would want to not have any of the original narrations. But I do think there's an interesting sort of comparison that you can make when, when they're both there. I'm just wondering what the future plans are for those that do not yet have counter narration. That is a really good question. I'm glad you asked it. Uh, first, the first iteration of the grant actually covered primarily Arizona, uh, tribes in the state of Arizona because the 
project scope at that point in time was Southwest film. So there's a lot of other films at the legacy site that are outside of the Southwest. But for this first iteration of the project, we focused in on Arizona tribes. So a lot of the narrations have been done for Diné, uh, Apache, uh, Tahana Autumn, and uh, Hopi. And I believe the Diné group of films is probably the largest that's on, that they have on there. We do plan on continuing this. We still have narrators that want to contribute, but like I said, the pandemic, it did kind of put a pause on that. We did resubmit and got notification that we were awarded uh, funds for our next iteration of the grant, which is to basically help other tribes. This time we're going to focus in on the Pueblo tribes of New Mexico along the Rio Grande and in Southern California. I believe we'll be working with the Malki Museum on helping them tribe source their own films. So one of the things that I keep getting asked is, are you doing this for other tribes? I'm personally not doing it for them because the important part of it is it has to be done on the community level. You can't send someone from outside the community and ask them to do this. It's got to be something that they want to do for themselves. So in this next iteration of the project, we were going to be working with a number of cultural heritage uh, museums, cultural heritage institutions to help them workshop and work on their own tribe sourcing efforts, utilizing their own collections, but also trying to recruit more people for all of our remaining films on our website. So that is actually the next iteration of the project. So we are moving forward with that and we are looking to do more, um, not just with the net films, but all more of the featured tribes in the Southwest region. Yeah, I, I think the project is fascinating. And, and you mentioned uh, sort of why it's important to gather as many different voices and as many different narrators as you can. Um, and, and the role of the narrators in, in these films that uh, have already been done is, uh, it's pretty clear that this is, um, this is their voice. Like this is not something that has been written for them or, or given to them. It, it really comes across that this is the voice of these narrators and, and they are providing um, their own sort of experience and viewpoint to, to what's happening. So you say there are others that are already waiting or, or are willing to be a part of the project. I'm just curious, how do you go about rec recruiting the narrators to do this? How do you find, I mean, I know that you probably uh, in your own local community have, have some uh, some resources and, and some ways of uh, recruiting, but uh, I'm curious on a broader scale how somebody might recruit people who, who want to do this kind of project and where, where you would even find them. I definitely started off here at the Net College. The library itself has a variety of partners who actually are authorities on the resources, uh, the, the activities in the film resources. For example, one of our earliest collaborators was with the Dinette Policy Institute at the college. Uh, they work a lot with IRB research, government all sorts of entities. So uh, one of our narrators, Michael Parrish, did the first video uh, that had a lot of focus in on uh, economic development in the 60s. It was called Navajo Moves into the Electronic Age. And so he provided a commentary on that. But a huge chunk of the videos really feature cultural arts activities like weaving, jewelry, make, uh, silversmithing, uh, making jewelry, uh, basket making, uh, moccasin making. So we actually have a continued partnership with the Navajo Cultural Arts Program here at the college that ha its mission is uh, working with, with master and emerging artists utilizing uh, intergenerational transfer of knowledge to try to keep the cultural arts going. So they had so many instructors and master artisans that were willing to work with us. So we've had some narrations from them. And then we also have the community members. One of our narrators was Cindy Slivers, who used to actually be a librarian here at the college in the audiovisual department, actually. And you know, she's from the community and she just had so much to say about well, the activities that were uh, featured on the, I'm not sure which one it was, it was general, I think one was called El Navajo, where it was just covering so many different things over the course of, I'd say, 40 minutes. And in recruiting them, it was hard. I think the biggest challenge was just trying to 
get them to understand what was I didn't want to be like directing anybody and say this is what you have to do I just really wanted to capture those moments where again if I just show the film to somebody and they just start talking but once again when you put a microphone in in front of someone and start recording a lot of times they kind of like feel like they need to be directed a certain way but a lot of our narratives were really good at finding what worked for them and you'll probably notice in the website that the audio doesn't necessarily match up with the track. And that's because we wanted to give the narrators the freedom to comment on what they commented, no matter how long it took. Uh, one of the first demos that were also done with the Tahana Autumn, uh, my co-PI was talking about how, you know, um, two elders were talking about, I think it was like a 10 minute film, but they ended up talking for over like 90 minutes and it didn't feel right to stop them from talking in the same way here. So a lot of times they'd be like, I'm going to pause here and they have just so many stories that they want to tell before they move forward again, because there's just so much to say and so much to react to on the film. So uh, the ch- coming back that to it again, it was a lot of partnership, ex- already existing partnerships. But a lot of it was also community outreach. And I think when people start to see the original ones, all of a sudden I kind of got responses like, oh, I have a response to this too. You know, and they got people, you know, contact me who was like, Are you still doing that project? Because I want to do one for this film, you know. And so it's kind of like I'm really grateful to our initial partners and our initial narrators because they really kind of got the ball rolling on this. And I think that doing the very first iterations, people can get really intimidated because they don't really know what to do at first when they're given so much freedom and I want to give them so much freedom. But once they kind of see how other people's have done, people have done it, then they are like, I want to do this. I want to contribute. And uh, how do I do that? So it's kind of was like, it just started off small and then it just spread after that. So we're going to shift gears just a little bit here. We mentioned that uh, the, the project had to be paused for a time because of the COVID-19 pandemic. I also mentioned at the beginning uh, that we've sort of gone through some some similar pauses here. And, and uh, I'm sure all of our listeners can count the various ways uh, that the pandemic has affected them personally and, and sort of affected their uh, uh, broader communities. But... What we know is that the pandemic, of course, has uh, affected Native and Indigenous communities in in, uh, ways beyond even those that uh, uh, most of us in sort of the broader national community have experienced. It's it's been a more significant impact for these Native and Indigenous communities. So I'm wondering um, what in in the community where uh, you live, uh, what have you seen personally? What have you felt personally or, or just in general? What do you know and what can you tell us about the ways uh, that the pandemic has had a more significant impact on Native and Indigenous communities? It definitely had a huge impact here at some point. I believe it was in March of 2020. The Navajo Nation was making national headlines on being a really huge hotspot for uh, coronavirus. And it did just hit the Navajo Nation really quickly and rapidly. And every thing was just terrifying at that point in time because there still wasn't a whole lot of it was difficult from the standpoint that the Navajo Nation is a huge area it is the size of the state of West Virginia land area so people relied people really rely on uh, the border towns we are considered a food desert so you think about the state of West Virginia and we only have around, I think, 11 grocery stores on the Navajo Nation. So people do rely on going into these border towns, which a lot of the time are um, at, at the very beginning. They're super crowded. Uh, the mask mandates, there was no supplies were really low. Again, people could not get hand sanitizer. People could not get um, Clorox wipes, not to mention the toilet paper stuff, but you know, canned goods, the grocery, local grocery stores actually had to respond to the panic buying because people were just taking everything off the shelves. And there was another aspect of it is that was really hard hitting was the, some of the infrastructure issues. There's a lot of people on the Navajo Nation that still don't have access to electricity or running water. So when the campaigns start coming out about making sure you wash your hands, a lot of, you know, water is a very precious resource on the Navajo Nation. So, you know, upping the in use of water 
to, you know, continuously wash your hands. A hand sanitizer could help, but again, the shortage during that time was just really putting a strain on all of the resources in the area here. Not to mention the health resources here, the clinics, they immediately got overrun by cases. So they had to respond quickly. But the, the Indigenous nations, Navajo Nation, they're very resilient. And we were one of the first ones that immediately organized, were able to organize and pull out of it. A lot of it came from the motivation of, particular, in particular, protecting uh, elders because they are considered knowledge holders. They are the ones who speak the language. So it was like, we have to protect elders. We have to protect our resources, you know, stay home. Don't be driving around. Don't be um, visiting people. I remember um, around that time, a lot of rural homesteads, they would have signs right outside their house saying no visitors, you know, or go home and whatnot. So they, um, the response to that came about as a means of protecting uh, responsibility to uh, each other and to the elders. That's what came out of that initially. And then another part of it, too, was the schools shutting down. And when the schools shut down, there was a big push to utilize that time to teach your kids the Navajo language, teach the culture. It's like your kids are home now. A lot of people say like, oh, we don't have time. You know, we're kids got school. Parents are at work, but everybody was at home. Everybody was working from home. Uh, students were uh, at home taking courses from home. Then there, then it was time like that's not an excuse anymore. You need to start working with your um, children, with your grandchildren. This is a time to start teaching them those cultural concepts and language. Um, you have time now. You guys are all at home. <laughs> right, and and you received a, a grant at Diné from the uh, ALA, American Library Association, I should clarify. Uh, this grant sort of, spe- was it specifically about uh, Navajo language learning and revitalization? Was it related to that? The grant itself is from the Libraries Transforming Communities Initiative with a particular focus on small and rural libraries. They, the It's to address the issue of importance. And a lot of the submissions, it, the issues can vary. They can vary from misinformation around vaccines that can revolve around ha- the housing crisis. For mine, I chose the Navajo language and uh, its virtual presence and it as a resource for both instructors and learners. And it, in the press release, you sort of mentioned this, that the, um, the a couple of things were interesting about the press release for me. Uh, one is that uh, Navajo language learning and revitalization is a divisive topic among, uh, you say, both teachers and learners. I wonder if you could start by just explaining a little bit about why uh, that topic is divisive. I'm actually learning a lot about it, too. I've been a a speaker for a long time. I did grow up in the um, Navajo language immersion program. It's called the Navajo back when I was in K through five, I believe. And... Back in that time, the belief was that Navajo kids were being, like English was a secondary language in this at, at home, and Navajo was the primary language, but not necessarily for everybody. Uh, so back then, the emphasis was teaching, was primarily focused on literacy. So the exercises were all about reading and writing Navajo and speaking wasn't necessarily as emphasized. Grammar wasn't necessarily emphasized as much as the reading and writing aspect of it because belief was everybody already was speaking it. And a lot of times people were, the belief is that that's what they had to focus in on. But at some point it shifted and the Navajo wasn't the primary language at home anymore. And the shift needed to be more on speaking. So that was one of the biggest, the first one of the first divisive topics I've really come to understand was this approach to teaching as literacy versus the spoken component of it. Another aspect of it is location. A lot of Navajos who reside in the city were criticizing the way Navajo is taught because it has a strong emphasis on the reservation, elements of the reservation whereas it didn't have a whole lot of urban concepts, um, which, uh, you know, not a native Navajo's living in the cities were used to. So they weren't getting as effective 
what they thought would be as an effective way to learn Navajo because it didn't really focus in on their home situations or their circumstances. So that's what made it difficult for learners who were not living on the reservation. And of course, among those living here on the Navajo Nation, there is all sorts of, I'm still getting my own uh, understanding of this as I'm approaching this grant, but uh, it did come out of a conflict between the teachers and the learners. The teachers had one way of teaching the language, and a lot of it was very focused in the classroom, face-to-face, whereas a lot of the online learners were saying, like, this format's not really helping me. I need more online resources. And at the same time, a lot of the instructors were saying, I don't know how to put these resources online. I hand make every one of my resources and, you know, I just got to make it work as best I can. So there was sort of a disconnect between the two, especially when it came to online learning of the language. And and this, uh, of course, uh, one of the things you mentioned is uh, all these issues that are already uh, sort of swirling around uh, Navajo language learning and revitalization. COVID-19 pandemic happens and then everybody's sort of forced into these virtual spaces where now uh, all of these considerations that already existed get moved into this new space. So what's been the impact of that? I think some of it is what you were just sort of mentioning. Uh, the impact of the, all this learning, uh, the the language learning and revitalization being forced into these virtual spaces. What's been the overall impact of that? It's been, uh, the feedback right now I've been getting is, again, it's been difficult for everybody, uh, but it has been kind of forcing everybody to rethink how we approach um, the accessibility of resources and even not just uh, relating to the language, but to the culture as well. There has been a lot of resistance to um, putting cultural knowledge and language materials online because of various, um, it could be taboo, it could be something that, hey, this is not something that should just be shown with the world. You got to be a certain, it has to be a certain season. It has to, you if you are in a certain condition, uh, say if you're pregnant or if you just had a particular ceremony done, you shouldn't be viewing these uh, resources So because it could undo whatever ceremony was done for that person. So there's a lot of cultural considerations for it too. But when COVID-19 happened, everybody had to adapt. And I remember when this first went down, um, there were young girls who were having their kinolta as a really important ceremony in Navajo culture, which involves around uh, female puberty and is um, nobody could gather for those, but there were people who were making it work by having medicine men people conduct the ceremony through their phones or through zoom. That way they could still do their ceremonies and still make their living. And the ceremonies could still go on, but it was very socially distanced. And there was a big push to, do more cultural programming um, made available either through Zoom or Facebook Live. So there became more of an openness to like, okay, if we want to keep teaching this, we got to find a way to get it out there instead of um, just saying you can't do that. You can't put that on social media. You can't put that on the internet. There's still aspects of that that need to be recognized in terms of um, considerations for cultural sensitivity and with the language as well. But what the pandemic has done has also forced a level of adaptation and openness to some of these um, tools and some of these platforms. So part of what I wanted to do with the grant is to kind of just get people to think about like, okay, what if we do make an online library for a lot of these resources, especially for language learning resources? What objections do you have to that? What do you think it would look like? How would you want it organized? Uh, would you contribute to it? Because there are a lot of people that say like, hey, I want to contribute lessons on this, you know, but I only want it shown during uh, winter time because these can only be told or these activities can only take place during the season. How do we manage that? So it forces a lot of people to think about how we're going to move forward in teaching and in um, language learning in this new online format. It sounds like very much like the uh, film project that we were discussing earlier. The the sort of key here is uh, 
uh, communication with the community, get, getting feedback from the community and, and getting them involved in the, the process of, of making these decisions and, and understanding the need to sort of balance and, and, and maintain these sort of cultural traditions with uh, the the knowledge that um, if there is not some sort of adaptation, some of, some of these things could be lost. They could be lost without uh, the willingness to, to do some adaptation. But but that adaptation obviously has to also be uh, aware of cultural sensitivities. And because if if you're not aware of the cultural cultural sensitivities, then uh, you almost lose the purpose of maintaining and, uh, and archiving this stuff in the first place. Mm-hmm. You're more uh, attuned to probably the realities there in, in your area and in your community. But what what are the state of these efforts sort of more broadly? Do you know, uh, I mean, outside of the Navajo community and the Navajo language, I know these efforts are ongoing in, in a lot of different Native and Indigenous communities. Do you know uh, what the state of those efforts are uh, sort of more broadly, I suppose? Are you uh, talking about um the language specifically language well, language specifically language. but but i think uh it, it seems to me as i'm listening to you talk about it that uh to to sort of try to extract language efforts from cultural efforts is uh to to separate those into two uh, sort of uh distinct questions uh seems to kind of miss the point I, it seems to me as i'm listening to you talk about it that that, that they're so closely tied together that uh sort of distinguishing between the two is is a uh, a, mis- a mistake i think yeah it's uh, i always go back to something my mother always told me when it came to uh, learning um, the navajo language was like without the language you don't have the culture and that's another aspect of it that's been very difficult to capture in online formats is and especially if you don't live in on that why there's so much tension between you know learning the language on the Navajo Nation versus learning it in an urban environment because so much is tied to location, to the land, and it ties the community back to the land as well. So I am familiar with only a few efforts outside of the Navajo My efforts have been primarily focused on the Navajo Nation, but there are a variety of other institutions that are work and tribal communities that are working on everything from online dictionaries uh, of their languages, um, working on certain, doing it by a certain syntax uh, system to getting speakers from both because it needing changes, whether you are male or female. So they got to get speakers for their dictionaries, uh, online dictionaries to speak the word and it the word varies if you are male or female so well, there's some efforts I believe there's another one on the Anishinaabe language project headed by Dr. Lorene Roy and we I've been in contact with her about both of our language efforts we're still very early in the process of of, of that but I would say I, my efforts right now are primarily focused in on the Navajo Nation, but there's some great work being done by other tribal communities for their own language and cultural efforts. I would imagine that anybody listening to our podcast, just, just sort of based on who our audience is, would, would already be uh, sort of sympathetic and, and even enthusiastic about these kind of efforts. But uh, just just in case, what would you say to somebody who, who asked you, well, what is the value of these efforts of, of sort of... Um, maintaining revitalizing uh whether it's uh language or or, uh, sort of cultural traditions um for these native and indigenous communities of of what value is that where do you locate that value the value of what i see in one of the work i'm doing but also the value i see in the public humanities in digital is that we're public um service community i ask myself am i doing this just for me or am I doing it for the public and that was it's very tied into concepts of indigenous uh, research methods wherein you don't do research just for research sake you don't do it just to add another peer-reviewed paper to your cv or to do it just because you say you wanted to do it how does this actually have tangible benefits 
to the community. And that's kind of where I see my or the direction my work has gone. And it's kind of how I see the direction I was pulled in when I first kind of started out doing these lesson plans. What I originally did lesson plans for people, for audiences that may not have come from Native communities. It went from there to being, all right, a lot of these narrations I found have been about providing these narrations, not just for outsiders to educate outsiders, uh, non-community members about Denali language and culture, but it also became about the narrators educating other Denali audiences on what they were seeing. So it's turning into ideas of like, how do we turn these into language learning modules? How do we use this to help expand um, language efforts, um, cultural knowledge, uh, so on and so forth. So coming back into my own community and working in this area has kind of made me focus more on not necessarily, like I said, doing research just for research, not doing the the humanities just for humanity's sake, but also asking how is this a benefit to the community and how is this a benefit to my community uh, specifically. So there's a certain level of personal interest in there as well, but at the same time, there's also got to be some sort of benefit to the broader community as well. And it's just not something in terms of like, I'm going to give data back or I'm just going to, you know, give a report on what I've done. It's got to be something that the community themselves can feel and has to be something tangible. So that's kind of where I see that when I hear like public humanities and public services and the direction that my work has taken me. And I think we hope, uh, you know, both uh, with this uh, sort of the idea of the public humanities uh, seeking out careers as a public humanitarian. I think we hope that's what people take from this and, and what people are uh, sort of thinking about when they're listening to the podcast. Like, what does that word public mean? Uh, what is the value of the humanities when it is applied to the, the public? And we're specifically thinking about, you know, beyond academia in our local communities. And, and certainly that sounds like what you're doing there. In addition to all of the projects that we're talk about. Uh, you're currently a RSB Mellon Cultural Heritage Fellow. Um, what does that work entail? What, what is uh, that fellowship about? Well, um, that goes along with issues with COVID. I am uh, part of the second cohort, which started in 2021 and this is 2023. I have not yet been a, we have not been able to have an in-person meeting at all. So all of this has been done at a distance. Right. But right now it has been entailing uh, the biggest um, component of it, especially out um, public facing component of it has to be the work we're doing in our working groups, which is divided into three broad areas. One of them being advocacy, another one being outreach. And I am part of the ethics uh, working group. So we will be, we're still in the process of working through a lot of our projects and each group will have their own project. I can't talk too much about it right now since it's still in the work. But uh, with regard to ethics, it is, it does talk a lot about people who work in areas of special collections, especially diverse collections. What is the aspect of ethics? Uh, What impact does that have on our work? And in particular, um, with the communities in which these items belong. So for me, that has been about everything we've been talking about here. What are the ethics surrounding culturally sensitive materials and getting various people involved in different projects? Um, What should be online? What shouldn't be online? How do we maintain non-monetary partnerships with community members? All the extra effort that goes out there in Um, making sure that we act ethically with our um, interactions, with our work within uh, special collections. And in our case, special collections can mean everything from museum type stuff to rare books and audiovisual materials to various archival materials. So uh, that's kind of the extent that we're working on right now. Again, we haven't been able to meet in person, so everything kind of has been at a distance and just sort of working together. But that's uh, kind of the main public-facing aspect of the fellowship at this point. Well, this conversation has been fantastic. I think uh, for anybody who's uh, 
listening to the podcast and is thinking about a career in the public humanities or even uh, work they can do uh, in the public humanities outside of academia, uh, you've given them sort of a a lot of guidelines, a lot of different areas to think about. And and I think a lot of times it comes back to, uh, you know, thinking locally, thinking about our own communities. That seems to be uh, a lot of times where where our public humanities efforts can can have the most impact. Um, But this is kind of a traditional way that we uh, wrap up the uh, podcast with this question uh, as we are uh, sort of thinking of our audience as people who are uh, thinking about careers in the public humanities, uh, particularly if they're following a path that takes them through a, a graduate program of some kind. Um, what kind of advice would you give to listeners? It may, it may be something that you haven't already suggested or maybe something that you want to reinforce. Uh, anything that you'd like to say to our listeners who are thinking about a career in public humanities? I, again, would go back to what I was saying earlier about focusing on the public, focusing in on what is the inter, the, what is the intersection of my interest and a public need. Um, I think that also that comes from being, coming from an indigenous community, coming from uh, back into my community to work for my community, but it also comes from the discipline of this librarian, this librarian track that I've also followed because a lot of it has to do not just with, you know, personal research or any of that. It's also like, how do I serve? How do I enhance services for our patrons, for our community users? Uh, so that's where I draw a lot of my um, of my advice for how to engage or how you plan on going into areas of public humanities is just, again, focusing on the public side of it the community side of it and service aspect of it. We have had conversations on this podcast with guests before uh, where we even question the, the very term public humanities because there is a sense in which humanities work, if it's being done the right kind of way, is always already public, right? That, that uh, what would the, we've thought about, what would a private humanities look like as, as opposed to a public? And it's very difficult to imagine uh, what that would be. So the, the public humanities uh, is almost a redundancy in, in, in some ways because the humanities just uh, should sort of naturally be public. And it sounds to me like that's uh, kind of the... the the takeaway that you're trying to get at there. Right. I, that, that's the one thing that I keep going back to is, um, I want the work I do to be a benefit to my community. So I would always, um, I always take to that aspect of it. It's, um, aspect of also a very important aspect of, uh, indigenous research methods is having, something that kind of tangible that can be felt by the community. Randy Sorrell, this has been fantastic. We really appreciate you joining us today. Um, and we're going to wrap up there, but I just want to say thanks again for being on our podcast and uh, for giving us a great conversation. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to Careers in the Public Humanities. Join us for our next episode when we'll interview another guest working in the public humanities. Feel free to subscribe to our podcast at web.uri.edu slash nextgenphd or find us on most podcast services. Search for Careers in the Public Humanities. This podcast was founded by Rachel Basio and Michelle Meek. This episode has been produced by Michael Landreth and Brianne Nepton in conjunction with the University of Rhode Island English Department. Introduction by Ryan Ingley and Catherine Winters. The editors are Michael Landreth and Brianne Nepton, and Mark Sketta is our sound designer.